Welcome to Work of Fiction, the podcast that analyzes the fictional organizations you see in movies and TV. Today's episode, The Lighthouse. Work of Sizzik, and I've got some new voices here with me today. David Kohler from our Canadian office, as well as our founder, Bud Cadell, down from San Francisco. Say hi, guys. Hello. Hi, guys. Hi. David, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. Hi. Um, well, first, um, usually everyone has a question about my accent because it's what not accent? common. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, so I'm from Switzerland. And my first language is French, and uh, my father speaks German, and I learn English with British people. And then my background is um, I'm a mathematician, and uh, I convert into being an educator and a trainer. And what I'm very interested in is human development. How do, how do you and I um, don't – it's not just about learning skills, but how do we grow and develop our ability to be human and to – um, sh- how do we show up in the world? Yeah. Well, it's great to have you. We are members of Nobel, an organizational design firm that transforms company cultures. Every month, we take a break from helping real organizations change to discuss fictional leaders and organizations, what works, what doesn't, and most importantly, we talk about the simple tools they, and you, our listeners, can implement to make the workplace better. If you've ever found your colleagues irritating or overbearing, imagine living with them 24-7. That's the premise of the lighthouse set in the 1880s. Two lighthouse keepers arrive on a remote island for a four-week stay. Their work keeps them occupied and they tolerate each other's company well enough until a storm kicks up, threatening to extend their stay indefinitely. Spoiler alerts, from here on out, you've been warned. I David, it. it's so nice to have your accent on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, David, we're going to have you record all of our summaries from here on out. And you, and just you too, but your accent. Is yeah, well. mostly the accent. Mostly the accent. Yeah. And the I'm beard, glad you but like they my they can't accent. hear the beard, but it's a good beard. Okay, thank you. <laughs> all right, so getting back to, to uh, brass tacks. If you put aside the 1880s nautical setting, I think this is really a heartwarming tale about how to not murder your coworkers. <laughs> uh, so, but let's 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 back up. That's that's getting towards the end. Thankfully, we gave a spoiler alert. So, Ephraim and Tom, uh, those are the two characters, or are they? Even though we don't know their names at this point, are they're new coworkers, right? Uh, unfortunately, they get off to a bit of a rocky start. Ephraim refuses to return Tom's toast. Should pale death with treble dread make the ocean caves our bed, God, who is the surge's role, deign to save our suppliant soul to four weeks. Oh, sir, thank you. Uh, bad luck to leave a toast unfinished lad. So when you're new to a job or when you're welcoming someone new to your team, how do you get the relationship started on the right foot? I think that part about the toast not being returned is interesting. Like, to what extent do you fit in norms that you don't understand? Right? What we see in the movie is um, the guy who refuses the toast 
doesn't drink. It's 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 not something he wants to do. He's yeah. he's not clear about what's going on. So there's, you know, do you just fit in in what seems to be the culture without being able to make sense of it or not? And I think that 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 becomes more a nuanced conversation beyond did he return the toast? Yes or no? But what's the background context and is that clear for him? Yeah. Yeah, and there's there's like a difference in seniority. So is this like a personal preference that I'm being asked to participate in, or is this like a cult company culture preference? Also, alcohol. If I'm if I don't want to return a toast, is there a reason? Yeah, it is not allowed, right? They say it's against the regulations. Uh, I don't understand. It's against regulations. Sir. Did you? I did, sir. From uh, from them's manual. Did picture you were reading that. But. Doesn't seem to bother the the old wiki, right? The Tom, who's yeah. more experienced. There's also a really interesting question of what exactly is the relationship between these two? It's not entirely clear up front whether they are colleagues and therefore on the same footing, or if you have more of a manager or a boss and an employer direct report situation, which I think actually makes their relationship a lot more complicated. Well, it becomes fairly uh, fairly clear quickly in the movie that there is that sort of manager seniority kind of relationship to them, but yeah. it's the way in which they go about it, like testing each other's boundaries. There's a lot of sort of that macho ego coming in in that relationship in the movie. Of um, it's not very sensitive to what's going on over there for the other person. It's way more about what's my territory and how do I make sure my boundaries don't get crossed and that you fit in the picture for me. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly a ton of dues paying happening in the movie. Um, And, you know, and that's an interesting topic to dive into in the culture we live in today around the the notion of like uh, millennials not wanting to pay their dues at work. And the flip side of that argument being like, well, you're not going to employ me for 30 years anymore. Why would I do this grunt work? What am I building up towards but clearly in the 1880s you're expected to do a lot of grunt work well in the movie the older tom says actually you know some other keepers might let you see the light but in on my watch this is not happening dogging it i respect them to get up to see the lantern i can deny you well the rules alternating shifts it's the mid watch that's the dread lad my watch night to morning um, you, 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 man, I'm fixed with. Take your duties. I don't think it speaks necessarily to the 1880s as much to whatever that the, the way that man wants to to have this relationship go without being fully transparent and explicit about it. Yeah, yeah, he's certainly projecting status. Yeah, by limiting uh, Ephraim's or Tom. I'm getting them Ephraim, same person. Um, well, <laughs> by limiting his exposure to the lighthouse and the things that happen there. And what's interesting is, uh, and, and that's been you know written about uh, from uh, from critics on this movie that 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 light in the lighthouse represents something else, not just the light, right? It's you, you could think about it as knowledge. You can think about it as a certain kind of wisdom. It's we, we could talk about it, like if if we're thinking organization organizational design, like it's it's. Um, access to uh, being in the know, being yeah. uh, being plugged in what really is going on in this organization. And that behavior of 
saying, no, you don't get to get close. You get to do all the menial work around it, but you don't get to get plugged in the actual stuff. And that's, I think, fascinating when we think about the cultures we, the organizational cultures we work with and, and, and some people's experience of whether or not they feel relevant to the overall mission when all they get to do is what they consider it to be menial. Yeah, I love that point. It reminds me of when I spent some time in advertising, there were the there were the pitch meetings for the creative ideas mm. and those were only limited to like the group creative director, but the the copywriters, the art designers who had worked on it weren't allowed in that room. Yeah. They don't really know what happens in that room and they all they know is like ideas enter and feedback leaves. Yeah. And yeah, there's just this, this complete disconnect between it and you have to work your way towards being in that room. And we see in the movie it's such a, a, a cool theme, right? Of of that man trying to make it, trying to satisfy the impossible asks in the hope of getting to that light. Yeah. And at first he's trying to play the system and work really hard, and then when he gets clear he's never gonna go and see that light and he starts plotting and scheming and and I think that that's telling, right? When we don't give access to people, they'll first try to see if they can get the access they want through the system and then if it doesn't then they'll start doing their own thing and that's where you get what do you call it counterproductive culture get counterproductive behaviors yeah. and and it's easy to blame them on like oh you're not following the rules anymore no what what what's my responsibility not giving you access that now you need to scheme behind my back to get something i'm preventing you from having yeah and in the lighthouse it's not even just limited access it's severance without pay right Ephraim yeah. later discovers that in the logbook he's actually been written out. He's he's been getting essentially a negative performance review despite all the hard work that he's putting in. Despite as you said, Bud putting in you know paying his dues. Uh, so that is that is another complication, right? It's not even that there's an opportunity to move up. He's not going to even get fair compensation for all the work he's putting in now. Sounds like an internship. <laughs> I think worse. And I think what's fascinating about it that in terms of mirroring what some organi- what we see in some organization is that not only does he discover that negative pe- uh, performance review, but that's on top of them fraternizing, being buddies, drinking together, and, and starting developing this more intimate relationship where they start opening up to each other, revealing yeah. uh, personal aspects of their lives. And so building that trust, and I think that scene where he discovers that negative performance review, it's not just it's not just the impact of being negatively reviewed and, and maybe not getting pay. It's the trust that gets broken. Like, I thought we had a relationship. It's true. Because they live together, there's not a lot of separation between their personal and their work life no. whatsoever, right? And so that's a question that we talk about a lot in modern society. It is how authentic should you be at work, right? How much of your whole self can you really bring to work? Um, how much can you protect yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, I think your point, David, is so great because you're navigating two power structures, right? You're yeah. navigating the the like the code book of like what you're supposed to do at this lighthouse and what you need to do to progress, but you're managing this other power structure of just the relationship with your manager, the social relationship with it. And some and we so often think they're the same thing and they they so often aren't. Yeah. What is a good way to manage up? Right? Because that's essentially what we're seeing. If Frame has to learn how to manage expectations, manage the relationship with Tom, because uh, Tom's not gonna do the work. 
Tom's just ordering him around. So what do we advise when we're working with middle managers who are who are struggling to communicate with that executive team? Well, first, I think you have to recognize, you know, the temperament and it's sort of like temperament and goals are the things that I always focus on. And I, I think with I think in this case, you've got a mercurial manager where it's like you can't. Yep. You almost always have to gauge where they are. Like he, Willem Dafoe's character will show up like elated and kind and nice, and one scene, and then the next will berate him for like <laughs> do, for like scrubbing the floor four times. Yeah. Um, so well, he didn't clean it. And I say you swab it again, and you swab it proper like this time, and you'll be swabbing it ten times more after that. And if I tells you to pull up and apart every floorboard and clapboard of this here house and scour them down with your bare bleeding knuckles, you'll do it. Did he? Don't, don't lie to me, bud. He I didn't mean, do it. He did. No, he didn't. <laughs> Come on. And I, I think so. I, that adds an extra layer of complexity to it, where you always have to do these like tone checks or like emotional checks with your manager of just like what mood are they in, and and you re- like if you can't leave that job. That's just a necessary part of working in an organization is to understand sort of the emotional state of the person that you're reporting to. Unfortunately, that's a huge amount of labor, unfair labor yeah. that the employees have to do. And the other thing that I, I, where I've been successful in trying to counsel people is to just understand what your manager is motivated by. You're never going to change their motivations. You have to find out what mm. their motivation is and find a way to align your interests and to really tell the story, especially if you're giving them bad news of why – you're still uh, invested in what they're trying to accomplish versus your own emotional state versus your own reactive state, which, again, is a huge amount of labor on top of an actual job. What about this division of labor? Because like we said, there's a lot of squabbling over who gets what roles. On another lighthouse, Ephraim would have a lot more access to the light here. He's just stuck doing all of the grunt work. How do you have that conversation with your manager about what your role is and how you can eventually grow into that role of the lightkeeper? Well, first off, they did no onboarding on that <laughs> boat trip to the lighthouse. Like, if you think no. about it, like, they had to get on a ship and go to that lighthouse. But it felt like when they were unloading into the house, that was the time, the first time they ever met each other is what it felt like. Yeah. And so there was a whole missed period of just getting to know each other, understanding roles, like what's required of you, what's the culture at this job, what's your understanding of yourself within this larger organization. That was completely skipped Yeah. for peeing in a bucket in front of one another mm. and then there's the bit about in that case the, the younger man who's uh, being managed uh, say in this case he really wants to see uh, that light uh, I think what's missing here is a conversation for okay here's my objective I want to be able to man the light and of course in the movie you know the other man says like there's no way what what you can do is have a conversation for like I got it right now. There's no way I'm going to uh, touch or get anywhere close to this thing. But what would it take? Like what would it take for you to actually trust me with this so that I can maybe create some goals for myself yeah. and have that conversation to scaffold getting there eventually so that there's that sense of growth and and a possible pathway to get there. Yeah. What about the flip side? So if you're a manager and you're talking about this division of labor. Uh, Willem Dafoe's character, Tom, is not the most, uh, let's say, gentle when he's making requests, right? He's barking orders and telling him, like, uh, 
like check the cistern or he's, he's yelling at him check the cistern uh, go up and paint the lighthouse haul the, the coal right there's a lot of barking of orders it's not a kindly request oh would you please do this thank you so much for your efforts hmm. so how do you tell somebody what to do in a nice way so that they want to do it and don't just feel like they're being given a list of orders I think it's it's more than tone of voice, right? Like a lot of people reduce it to like asking nicely, mm-hmm. but it's the it's the context of the request. So it's it's a it's a matter of establishing rapport about here we are, say on this island. Here's the overall mission. Here's the specific role we've crafted for you, and here's the specific role I have. And within the role you have, here are the specific tasks, and um, to some extent, there's there's room to actually connect the dots for people about how do these different tasks connect to the overall mission um, so that it doesn't become just scrub the floor, but if the floor doesn't get scrubbed and gets dirty, then the rats will come and before we know it, we'll be sick and given we're stuck on the island, it doesn't work or whatever the impact of work not being done properly means. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's a lighthouse. So so much of that work is built around a rhythm and a schedule. But then when he's given orders, they feel punitive. They feel yeah. they feel like, like a penalty without, to your point, that context or without just an understanding of like, no, we have to paint the lighthouse like once a year. Without that understanding of like that's required, they do feel just like tasks that stack up uh, like Tetris. Yeah. So the context is missing. And I think the, the episode about painting is really interesting because he's holding up younger Ephraim, right, who's freaked out that he's going to fall. Easy! Never been in better hands! Easy! Quit your flailing, lad! I ain't! Yours! Uh, and it does happen. And it's like that whole providing safety, like just, <laughs> in this case, literal, but there's the, that movie has so many connotations to emotional safety, emotional presence. So it's not just physical safety of, uh, but in this case, we, like that guy's just so freaked out, and there's besides no, no, it'll be fine, and it doesn't and stop squirming. Yeah, it stops squirming, and then blaming him for it, like it's your squirming who had you fall, which is just not the case at all. Yeah, I think the lighthouse overall has a lot of OSHA violations. Uh, <laughs> I, I think we're gonna need to get an. Inspector. You mean the murder part, or uh, besides besides the murder part? So, you know, any you can survive anything for four weeks, which is what the initial time frame is right you get four weeks on the island you do your job and mm. then you get a break unfortunately something happens a storm kicks up and they realize that there is no boat coming and they might be stand- stranded on the island for a very long time so things tend to get shall we say a little bit more heated between the two mm-hmm. uh, there there's actually one scene where they are literally at each other's throats over how good or not Tom's cooking is. You're fond of me lobster, ain't you? Drunken enough. The Ginny Fenton. I seen it. You're fond of me lobster. Say it. Say it. Say it. I don't have to say nothing. Daddy! So if you find yourself in a really tense situation with your colleagues, what's a better way to manage conflict? Well, first, I just want to say to the premise of, the, of your question, the four weeks bit really stuck with me when I was watching the mm. film. 
And it's because a lot of early NASA experiments in social isolation and teaming were based around four weeks. Because that's what they were starting to think about, like trips to the moon and yeah. maybe trips slightly beyond. Now we're looking at now like more recent um, experiments around like five months because we're thinking about how do we get teams to Mars. But even in those early four-week studies, they noticed like such challenges around social cohesion. And, and I looked into one study that was done in 1974 by George Western University with dyads, so like with groups of two. And just the amount of stress that could be created in just four weeks between two people. Yeah. Both they saw that um, either in some situations, the two just completely isolated from each other, especially when their work wasn't overlapping. So it became really critical to create shared work. Um, groups of two tend to share way more personal information than groups of three or more, yeah. which is also kind of fascinating. And without management on the ground or back at NASA headquarters, they turned on each other because they could easily turn on management, but if they didn't have yeah. some sort of outside pressure. So I just thought that was fascinating. Like even when you're when I watched the film, I was like, oh, four weeks. How hard could four weeks be? But really, when mm -hmm. we talk about social isolation, four weeks is ages. Yeah. And that piece you just mentioned, right, about the um, in the case of the movie, the lack of collaboration, right? These two in the movie never work on anything together. Yeah, that's right. true. Right, and and that that uh, supports that almost forces antagonism because if anything goes wrong, it's either you or me. Yeah, there's no way around it, and we don't build that collaborative. Like the only thing that has them to go together is that bit of social time that very quickly just becomes drinking. Well, and painting the lighthouse in which. Tom uh, drops a frame. That was the only act of collaboration. And that went really bad. So yeah. maybe that's the, the other, th like, like as a message in the movie, like collaboration went to hell. And, um, no, I think you're so right, though. That it's, it's that no shared work. And then the other thing that um, those early experiments pointed out was that you have to set, even in just a four-week time frame, you have to together set short-term and mid-term goals without – without sort of chunking time down into like yeah. every two days or every week. It, and I, I mean, we see that with teams that are much bigger, you yeah. know, that like without sort of major milestones you're plotting to, like social cohesion can go down the toilet. And doing that work for even between, you know, managers and employees to have some work they do together, to, yeah. to actually have that experience of co-working uh, and not just have a pure separation. Yeah. Now, back to your question, I think the other aspect I think the movie really brings forward is the idea of uh, identity. There's that whole lens in the movie about are these two characters actually two different people or are they two facets of the same person, a younger version, an older version? Um, I think in the context of work, it brings the conversation about uh, managing your inner self, mm. right? Because there's all the, the things you can do at the level of task distribution, co-working, and so on. But what's happening now in, in this part of the 21st century is we're having this conversation about personal leadership and being able to manage your inner world, which is now becoming not a thing people are good or not good at, but an expectation that you train yourself to have some capacity to, to have a say in how you react to whatever your inner world is. So, for example, in that scene when... Uh, older Tom gets all upset that the younger one doesn't like his cooking, you can really see the breakdown of no uh, no control over the inner world. Like it just becomes a, how dare you not like my cooking? 
There's no managing that reaction. There's no appreciation of another perspective. Uh, you could call it emotional intelligence. So I think the movie has also has a lot of that that lens that we're working on with organization at the level of um, not just what you do, but who you're being. Like what's your attitude towards yourself and others and how you do that inner work management. Do you think that one of the characters is better at self-management than the other? Or do they both really need some training on that? I think they both demonstrate having no training at that. Like they don't distinguish reality from their inner world. Like what they perceive is reality. It's 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 totally collapsed. Mm. Uh, even though as a viewer, you can see that some of it is uh, either dreamy or hallucinatory or, right? But they, they collapse reality with the internal world. They don't manage. There's no at no point do they take on another person's perspective. Like that ability to put yourself in someone else's shoe is never demonstrated. Um, so yeah, I don't. I'd rate them as zero on both cases. <laughs> Close so to zero. Needs work. I'm really personally shocked that there wasn't extensive training for lighthouse keepers <laughs> in, the in, the, in the 1880s. Yeah, Shocking. like I really would have thought there'd be an extensive onboarding process. A lot of. A lot of, I mean, it is on the job training. Um, you know, this movie is based on a real story. Yes, I yeah. did, but it's I saw that only yeah. only influenced by In hints. Yeah. yeah. So, but tell us tell us what the original story was. Well, I mean, like it's it's a very long story, <laughs> but ultimately, so you're left you're two people left alone for for a period of time, and two lighthouse keepers were left alone who were notoriously at each other's throats. One died by, I believe, natural causes or by yeah. an accident, yeah. and the other was so worried that he'd be accused of his murder that he went about like he first he built a coffin, yeah, and then attached it to the side of the lighthouse, and then the coffin washed away, and the bo- so that just the body was stuck to the side of the lighthouse, and it looked like it was waving at passers by. And they were both called Tom. And they both were called Tom. Which is where that aspect of the movie came out, right? So yeah. we, we discover at one point that Ephraim's real name is Tom. So we've got two Toms on yeah. one island. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think sort of like Robert Pattinson's character, Ephraim Tom, um, he is trying to manage so many, like multiple identities at yeah. work, which is actually like what a lot of us do, have to do at work. Um, and I think Willem Dafoe's Tom, he almost to me is like just pure – just pure it he's just like i i don't see like he just sort of like he's he's bombastic but i don't see to your point he doesn't have much emotional intelligence but i almost feel like ephraim is like trying to navigate these multiple identities all the time and he's almost like so conflicted and can't quite figure out who he is well the older tom is actually managing multiple identities because as we discover he's not really like an old sea captain like you damn fool yarns and you captain ahab horse his story about his bum leg keeps changing all the time. So old Tom is actually making up a bunch of identities and probably can't keep any of them straight. No, right. It's a bit different. I think. I think my it, mind it, was warped by this movie. <laughs> but I think it's a bit different. I think uh, Ephraim really has these multiple identities because he's taking on another name. Like he's he's switched character with someone he, he done possibly murdered or yeah. he done drapered himself. Um, where was? Uh, Willem Dafoe's character is a little different. He's just trying to navigate just that one identity of who he wants to be, who he wants to think he is, who he wants people to think he is as a sailor and a captain who's actually likely has spent all his life 
doing lighthouse keeping and never really commended any boat. So it's a little, it, it is like the, the, the lies in the multiple aspects of self, but I think it's interesting how it's a little different as well. Mm. Because people have that, right? So in, in companies, we see people pretending to be a certain way, wanting to occur as, a, as you know, uh, people have some ideas. A leader is bold and loud and they're trying to pretend, no, I'm always like that and I've had all these success and essentially the lie or tweak reality about that persona they're trying to build. And then there's the case of the reconciling identities. Um, I went to a talk with someone talk, uh, discussing the idea of the unemployed self that we all have. Like mm. there's a part of myself that's unemployable. Yeah. The part of me that you know loves playing the piano, but I'm not good at it. No one would ever you know pay me for that. Oh, I thought we were talking about like I don't know the drunken underpants wearing you know swearing unemployed self. Like that was that's where my no my, oh my, yeah no talking I got about you. me. <laughs> and the answer is you start an organizational design firm. Come on. <laughs> No, we're talking about the skills, knowledge, attitudes you have that in the current economy, no one is willing to pay for, right? right? So you have a hobby. Um, you're just awesome at making, um, picking birthday presents, but it's not something you can turn into something you get paid for, at least not in the business you're in. And reconciling these identities of people think of me as a marketer or as a trainer or as whatever. Yeah. But also have these other like, well, I'm a jazz lover and I'm a amateur poet. Would you like to read us some poetry of yours? <laughs> no, this one I made up. I'm not an amateur poet. <laughs> yeah. So uh, going back to this idea of, you know, Ephraim Don Draper himself, he in the movie, we discover that he saw a man die under questionable circumstances. He didn't really speak up to say anything, and then he stole his identity mm -hmm. in order to get a, a clean start. So, how again, how important is it to bring your full self to work? And when should you not spill the beans? Why just spill your beans, Tommy? I mean, there's a question of authenticity. Uh, because there's a distinction between saying everything that's on your mind. Like when people think about bringing your own self and being self-expressed. Uh, a lot of people have this illusion that self-expression means putting on loudspeaker everything that goes in your head. Like, oh, I hate your pants and you annoy me. Like, that's not self-expression. Radical candor, man. No, and yeah, radical candor. Um, all good terms that get misunderstood a lot. Self-expression is not about putting on loudspeaker all the nonsense that travels, that goes through our heads. It's about um, actually expressing yourself authentically to uh, who you say you are in the world. Mm. You know, now if there's some aspects of my life that me not being able to share um, impact that, there's a point at which you want to say, "Okay, look, th there's there's a part of me that doesn't get expressed and make a difference for me to share some of it with you." But I think the p mistake people make is they, they do it like as a, I have a right to, you should listen to me, as opposed to like, no, people listening to you is always a privilege. So it's about inviting people to um, see you as a more complex, more multifaceted human being than they might initially think you are. Yeah. And that provides you an expanded level of self-expression. But it's it's done as an invitation, which means I have to be responsible for what I bring to you. I can't just start opening my mouth and telling you everything that's on my head. Being authentic. It's about 
responsibly sharing yourself in a way that honors the people who are around you. Yeah, I feel like this is a an example of historically marginalized people saying, I can't bring my full self to work. And yeah. then white people saying, thank God you said that because I have all these thoughts in my mind that I'd like to share with you. Yeah, uh, <laughs> And we've completely misinterpreted it. I think you nailed that. Yeah. As the movie progresses, I think it's fair to say that one, if not both, uh, of the characters lose their minds. So <laughs> why don't we talk about mental health at the workplace? What's the current state of employee well-being at work? What do we see companies doing well and where are they not acting at all? Where could they be doing better? I mean, I, I think of mental health at work, where we are with that is where we were with diversity and inclusion for a while where we didn't even have the language to talk about it. And we have some good intentions and some very odd policies to try to incorporate mental health at work. Odd policies such as? Let's yeah. all do yoga. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, let's all meditate. We will have those, to meditate. Those things are helpful, but, you know, it doesn't it doesn't cover the broad spectrum of, of, of what we mean by mental health at work. Um, you know, one thing from the film is, you know, have safe drinking water and don't create a culture of drinking what appears to be uh, like ethanol. It, it's apparently turpentine, turpentine and honey. Turpentine and honey. Oh, my God. I looked that up. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's fine. That's an old-timey cocktail that you could get yeah. just down the street here in Echo Park. <laughs> Honestly, I, I, I could see a $15 cocktail being called turpentine and honey. No, they would call it the lighthouse special. I mean, I mean, I think the topic of health itself is still not something that is fully well addressed, right? So... Um, accepting i think the first step for any organization to be able to deal powerfully with health and mental health is first to accept the diversity of human beings and the diversity of what people deal with um how it impacts them you know my wife has had um, a concussion and the in the impact of that concussion on the way she can concentrate work i keep i keep being bewildered by what I, you know, I live with her. I think I know what's going on, but then I talk to her, find out what's going on, and it's hard for me to even understand how little I can understand her own world, where I think she's fine, and she says, no, actually, this is totally overwhelming, and, and I'm totally brain... She says she's brain tired, and she needs a break. Mm -hmm. So it really takes for me to to do the work to keep trusting her and her experience because my personal opinion and my personal assessment of what's going on is just crap. Yeah. But I think that raises a great point, right? That you are asking, that you are inquired and you're not just making an assumption, oh, it's fine. She can she can go on yeah. without a problem. So yeah. Yeah, I'm asking and I'm and I'm and I'm doing the work to actually believe her. Yeah. Like even in the face of my brain going like that is not true. Mm. And so at work, like, I mean, she's my wife. I have a commitment to her. Like, I have a you know, very special relationship with her. Man, it's, it's hard at work when, you know, with all the... It's hard at work when on top of that, you have all these other aspects to your relationship to either your managers or the people you manage that can come in the way. Like, are you saying that because you're late on the report? And like, you know, yeah. it gets messy. Absolutely. What if you're an individual... And you're in a workplace which maybe isn't the most supportive. Maybe you have a crazy toxic boss who is making you do all the grunt work at your at your local lighthouse. <laughs> How can you 
help protect yourself and keep yourself in a good state without drinking turpentine and honey? I mean, you have to, it's so dependent on the context of the company, but you have to set some limits for yourself if yeah. the organization won't set, set limits for you. Right. I mean, ultimately, especially in the era we live in now where you're going to work there for two years, you have to be responsible for your own health and well-being, even though at the same time, yeah. I think companies absolutely should be as well. But let's be honest, you own your own health and you have to create those limits and decide for when you're breaking those limits. And, and you know, and I think we have to get rid of the uh, idea that your early 20s are meant to be like where you punish yourself and your mind to learn. I just don't think that that's ever a great learning experience to begin with. And I think that's an incredibly damaging myth that companies tend to profit off of. Mm. And in that, uh, so I'm thinking, I, I'm almost re rethinking your question, like kind of like if I was Robert Pattinson, what would I you do? You look just like him. <laughs> oh, that's good for my ego. I'll take it. <laughs> Um, it's a podcast. It's a podcast. <laughs> I, and I sound just like him too. Yes, you do. I know. Um, but if I was in his shoes, I'd be looking at that, that question of boundaries, right? Mm. Do I have to sleep in the same quarters as that older man? Um, can we work on a couple things together? Can I cook a couple of meals? I mean, maybe he doesn't want to at the end of the day, but what what can I do to, to separate things? And, and of course, the... the that breakdown where he starts drinking when he started by saying, I'm not gonna, though the water being what it was, there's not many options. Sure. Um, and I think there's that question of s s setting some limits, as you say, like, wh what do I want my evening to be like before we start working again? Is it really the most resourcing, restful way for myself, my body, and my mind um, to to spend these evenings arguing with this older man. Yeah, and I think it's important in the film. So things go off the rails pretty quickly, but things don't truly get violent until the not just the ship doesn't arrive, but they destroy the the lifeboat is destroyed. Yeah. So literally like you you've run out of choices. Yeah. Like you are now isolated, you are fully isolated, you're fully stuck in this job and I think that's the other challenge too. Like that's when you see truly bad behavior. That's when you see truly toxic responses But on both sides, like from managers and from staff when they feel like there are no escape options in those environments. Now, I think what that brings up too is the, the, that question of survival, right? Which is in the movie, it's a movie. They want to make it sensational. Of course, there's no lifeboat. There's a matter of life and death, right? And so in the, in the context of life and death, Human beings, like any creature, has that have that context of survival, and we do and act in very specific ways in the name of surviving things. I think the big pitfall, and I think that's what's awesome about movies, is they allow us to distinguish that. The big pitfall is for most of us, um, in the reality of our jobs, we are actually not in a state of survival. Right. I mean, we can pretend we are, and people talk like that. People talk about having emergencies at work, which when you think about the language of an emergency at work should mean there's sirens and the police and Fire something. Fire yeah. Yeah. But if all you mean is like the client is upset and uh, the report is late, that's not an emergency. It's a lack of integrity. It's a, Call it something else. But we pretend that it's about survival. And, for, and it is for some people. 
But for a lot of people, it actually isn't. Right. You actually have a choice, both about the context for your work and what you're going to do about it. Yeah. And I think distinguishing that, because survival, I mean, it's necessary, but it only gives you so many options. Yeah. And when you really get, I am not, I don't have anything to survive here. All of a sudden, you can start using these more complex, like the, you know, it's not the fast thinking, it's the slow thinking. If you think about the thinking fast and slow uh, uh, book, those are more complex, powerful tools that human beings have access to that often get bypassed in the name of survival. Yeah. Well, I've I've always suffered with anxiety, and in my late twenties in New York. Mm. Um, as part of a group of strategists, I had I really was struggling with it, and I began I began reminding myself every day. What the phrase I used was "There's no tightrope." Yeah, which is just like you always have this feeling that you're suspended fifty feet above air on this yeah. like on this tightrope, and really you're on the ground to all the points. There's no tightrope. Yeah, I love it's that. like um, and that was like so important for me to remember. Like, yeah. Oh, what's the worst thing that could happen here? I have a bad meeting. Yeah, and the language is critical. You hear it in some people's language. Like they, I mean, as I said, they talk about emergencies, but then it creates a certain, the language we use creates the context inside of which we live. Yeah. So altering the language in a powerful way can make a profound difference. Mm. I want to explore this idea a little bit more about how we talk about how we're often in crisis or survival mode yeah. in the workplace. The reality is we're not, but it can be a really tense situation, right? Like yeah, we, for sure. There's, there's pressure, there's deadlines. There's salaries on the line. So there is there there are real reasons that people feel stressed about going into the workplace. Now, in some places, such as boot camp, this stress can actually bring people together, right? Like mm. if you go through a hardship with a bunch of people, you can come out on the other side feeling like, wow, I, I've bonded with these people. They have my back. I've got theirs. We've come through it stronger. I think one of the bright spots in an otherwise really strange film is there's a scene after drinking where Tom and Ephraim are, are dancing together. So my question to you is, if you are going through a really tense time at work, what are some things that you can do to make sure that you end up actually bonding with your colleagues and coming out stronger at the end of it as opposed to murdering them? Well, I think that, I mean, the shared ritual of dancing, They, I mean, they do that in the film over and over again. It kind of becomes their thing. Yeah. And it's a positive ritual I mean, it's 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 uh you singing. know it's fueled by alcohol, but you know, um, it is still yeah singing things like that. I think the things that you have to be careful of are neg bonding over negative things, right? Because that like bonding over complaining is actually a it's a it's a great shortcut to bonding yeah. with others, but ultimately all it does is increase cynicism, and it usually comes at the cost of cohesion with some other group in the organization right it's us versus them yeah and it's such a trap you can fall into and the context is decisive right if it, if you think about boot camp like if it occurs as a one-off like the 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 one whole project the one thing and it's a special once in a lifetime or at least once in a like a like a an actual event, yeah. then I think people can bond over that. Over that, it becomes a hardship, and overcoming the hardship becomes a, a victory, and people bond over these things. What I think we see a lot in organization is actually no, that's just day to day. Yeah. Every day is hard. Every day is a rush, um, and that doesn't allow for any victory because you never come out of it. Right. See, the boot camp only makes a can 
you got to get out of the boot camp. You graduate. You got to graduate. Yeah. And then you have memories about when we did that thing together. But if you just live your life in the boot camp, there's going to be no bonding, no heart, nothing. Yeah. All right. Final question. Usually I ask what we would recommend for the team going forward, but it <laughs> seems that neither of them has survived this <laughs> escape experience. Escape pod. <laughs> uh, so let's assume that we are going to be talking to the organization or the government entity that owns the lighthouse. What would we advise them to do to avoid a repeat incident? Well, there's some team casting advice that we could give yep. them around really thinking about who works well. If it is going to have to be like a dyad, a group of two, how do you form that team? How do you select for that team? And how do you build chemistry long before they're in the severe circumstance of being socially isolated in the middle of a storm? Mm. Let's start there. The other tool is uh, that idea of a, a kickoff meeting, right? So prior to starting the project, in, in which case here it was get on the island for four weeks, actually having a kickoff meeting for people to meet, get a sense of expectation, what kind of conflicts might arise, what kind of difficulties, what kind of resources do we need so that these two don't show up on the island sort of shaking hands, hey, I'm Tom, what's your name, which is almost what they do. Right. Um, but they've actually had a chance to get to know each other a little bit and do a little bit of thinking of, ooh, four weeks on an island, what might go wrong and what do we, what we need to need? What do you need? What do I need? Yeah. We often encourage managers to fill out what we like to call a user manual. Sometimes you'll see it yeah. referred to a, a manual of me, right? Where you just really spell out, here's what I'm like to work with as a manager. Here's how I want to be communicated with. If I if I need to give you feedback or if you need to give feedback to me, here's what I want to see. If I ask you about my cooking, here's what to say. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, you'll never see the light. Are you cool with that? You don't, yeah. you don't like my lobster? <laughs> But yeah, so it's it's really important. We all have these implicit assumptions that we make about how we behave and who we are. Again, getting back to that that question about how self-aware are you? How good are you at self-management? Yeah. And so thinking that through and making that explicit and bringing that to the fore with your colleague can make for, shall I say, smooth sailing? Oh. <laughs> I think I crashed on the rocks on that one. <laughs> That was my beacon of hope. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Work of Fiction. Don't forget to subscribe for future updates and leave us a rating if you liked what you heard. Find more episodes or get in touch with us at workoffiction.fm. Work of Fiction.